Wednesday Live, I'm Graham Lynch. We have a packed show today. It was Telstra Investor Day this week. Lots and lots of announcements and we uh, managed to catch up with Andy Penn, the CEO, and Vicky Brady, the CFO. That interview is coming up later in the show. We're also going to hear from Singtel CEO Chua Sok Kong. She's retiring at the end of the year after 30 years of Singtel, 13 as CEO. I'm also going to be chatting with Cisco's Daniel Hutchins in a sponsored interview where we take a look at the world of converged IP and optical transport and take a look at some of the current breakthroughs and thinking in that area. But first up, we're going to hear from Optus CEO Kelly Bayer-Rosmarin. She recently took over from long-term exec Alan Liu, and it's been a testing time for her with the pandemic hitting the economy. Optus reported its six-month results this week, covering the entire impact period of COVID, and it made for sobering reading with a 9% revenue fall and a plunge from profit to loss. But Kelly is upbeat about a post-pandemic recovery. I asked her, first of all, what she saw as the bright shoots from what was a fairly challenging half. Um, thanks, uh, Graham. Yes, I'm, I'm very optimistic. If you look at all the leading indicators, they're heading in the right direction. Our customer SAT is the highest it's ever been. Our complaints are reducing. Our service levels are strong. Our value add is just unbeatable with what we're doing with Optus Sport and now Optus Fitness. Um, the differentiating features that we've launched into the market from our family plan bundles uh, through to unlimited day-to-days, the engagement our, our customer base has through things like Donate Your Data, the network coverage is the strongest that it's ever been. We've broken a speed record on 5G and are rolling out Australia's fastest 5G. And if you remove those COVID impacts, our ARPU is showing signs of growth. So I, I am very optimistic that all the leading indicators are pointing in the right direction and we are very well positioned for sustained, profitable growth. Okay, now um, one of the things uh, that was pointed out today was that not only did COVID impact the revenues, but also the expenses in, in terms of such things as needing to move support yep. onshore, safety and cleaning measures, and so on and so on. Um, are those costs going to be permanent? Are they, are they going to be a permanent feature going forward, or do you think there be, might be some mitigation of that going forward? Yeah, well, I mean, firstly, I think the good news story is that we made a conscious decision to put customers first. And despite all the headwinds we were facing, uh, we did everything we could to safeguard our customers and our employees, uh, including hiring some onshore resources, pivoting all of our store staff to be doing messaging so we could support our customers, and continuing all of our investments in customer experience and network. So, so I think a very strong statement that we've made about being a customer champion and putting customer needs first. Now, there have been some increases in costs as a result, and um, I think some of those uh, will be there for a while and some will be more temporary. Um, and it's very hard to say exactly which ones are going to be when. Um, you know, for example, uh, We've increased the amount of cleaning and the depth of cleaning we do at every single site across the country. Um, is that a permanent feature of how things are for now and forever? Or is it just something that will be there for a year and then we go back? I can't predict that. What I can say is we will remain committed to putting our customers first. Okay. 
Now, one of the bright spots for the last half was um, Optus Enterprise, um, where reported revenue and EBITDA growth compared to the corresponding prior year period. Um, now, COVID obviously has had a big impact in the consumer area, but not so much on, on your enterprise revenues. Why is that? Um, so, so I think you have to also bear in mind where the business was last year. So while it's returned to growth, it's growth of quite a low base. And you have to think through some of the impacts of COVID were actually positive on the enterprise business because there was a much greater demand for collaboration tools, work for home solutions for um, as, as companies grappled with how to make their workforces effective in a work-from-home environment. Um, as well as the, the team in, in Optus Business, which we've now renamed to Optus Enterprise. Uh, the team there has been really focused on growing their ICT business, um, really doubling down on investing in relationships that they've built over many years. Uh, and so I think there is also an element of just a more focused strategy uh, that is playing out in their improving trajectory. Okay, now um, one of the, the more exciting things that Optus has done recently is introduce its uh, home fixed wireless product. How, how is that tracking? And do you expect that it will begin to make a meaningful contribution to your results in 2021? Yeah, so you're talking about 5G at home? That's right, yes. Our 5G home product. Yeah, I mean, we're really excited about that. We now uh, have that product available to 650,000 households across Australia, and that will continue to grow. The customer satisfaction on that is very high. The average speeds that customers are achieving are greater than 200 megabits per second, so uh, a really, really good product. And we've just recently uh, announced two speed tiers to that, so we'll offer a product that's capped at 100 megabits per second and a product with unlimited speeds. So we, we clearly think there's demand uh, and we're going to keep growing um, this product. Okay. Um, now, uh, Optus Sports had a gr- great result, over 860,000 subscribers, and you introduced a new fitness platform, and that's doing very well. But as you may, may have noticed, Stan is and Channel 9 together are now getting into the streaming sports business in a big way with rugby and tennis rights. Uh, what, what impact do you think that will have on Optus, and, and you know, are we seeing the beginning of a bit of an arms race in, in streamed sport in Australia? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that we are quite confident that we have a, a great platform, a committed fan base who's highly engaged. Um, we, we're comfortable with our strategy. Um, you know, we wish Stan the best of luck with, uh, with rugby. And um, I, I think we remain the most successful live streaming sports platform in the country. Okay. Now, I've got a final question. Um, across a few regulatory submissions in recent times, Optus has made some observations about the difficult environment it faces in a, in a regulatory and policy sense, you know, across the board of NBN pricing spectrum. And most recently, with the critical infrastructure bill, Optus made some comments about the cost of compliance and the high cost of compliance of that. Um, do you feel that you've been getting a good audience in Canberra um, as to some of those concerns? Are you being listened to? Um, yes. I do feel that we are, are listened to uh, in Canberra. I feel like the, the, the one um, the one thing you can be sure of off the back of COVID is that everybody now fully understands how critical 
telecommunications infrastructure is to the country and its future prosperity. That was also underscored by the findings from the reviews into the bushfires that, that said that, that concluded that telecommunications was a service most valued by those communities. So I think everyone in Canberra understands how critical it is. I think that the challenge for all of us as an industry is to figure out how to focus on the right levers that return the sector to be thriving, delivering on its cost of capital to investors so that we can continue to invest and underpin economic growth for the country. Okay, thank you very much, Kelly. Well, it was Tilster Investor Day this week, and boy, was it a big day for announcements. We ended up running about nine or ten pages of coverage in Comms Day the following day. It's not not often that we do that. Anyway, I'm joined by uh, Rowan Pierce, who's the executive editor of Comms Day, who's going to, first of all, outline some of the major announcements regarding the proposed restructuring of Tilstra. Hi there, Rowan. Hi, Graham. Yeah, so it was, it was a bit of a big one. Um, it was what uh, Andy Penn's called the most complex restructure of Telstra since privatization. And essentially splitting, splitting the company into three legal entities, so um, Infraco Fixed, Infraco Towers or Towerco, and also Servco, which would basically, it's not a brand name, but would house like Telstra's uh, consumer small business and enterprise arms. So the, the idea, as, as um, Andy put it, is to basically give... Um, give Telstra new opportunities to kind of monetize some of their passive infrastructure. So Servco, for example, would retain all the RAN gear, all the active electronic components of the fiber network and all Telstra's uh, spectrum, whereas all the kind of passive stuff is shoved into um, Infraco Fixed, which it is already in there now, or Infraco Towers. Um, and I guess the, the, uh, the most immediate thing that um, Andy announced was that in FY21, Telstra is going to uh, monetize Talico. It was a bit coy on what kind of form that it would take, but I think, um, I, I think the, and it, it's actually interesting because obviously like, there's, there's been talk about Optus looking to do the same at the moment, but uh, what struck me as the interesting thing is there's been a lot of um, discussion recently about the kind of appetite for investing in digital infrastructure at, actually outstripping the opportunities to invest. So, you know, they're there are kind of um, some of the big institutional investors out there looking for fiber and data centers and towers and that kind of thing. So I think that um, it kind of makes sense in that context. I guess to a lesser extent, we've seen a bit of that with the kind of, you know, aware super trying to move into um, Opticom. Okay, well, one of the other big announcements was um, Telstra announcing that it's going to get into the resale of energy services to its customers. Of course, that's not... A new thing. Quite a few telcos do it, and also alternately, quite a few utilities sell telco services to their customers as well. But Andy Penn's reasoning was quite interesting. He said, basically, said that Telstra is one of the largest consumers of electricity in the country. It's been underwriting renewable generation, um, providing power capacity during times of extreme demand or grid instability, and neutralising the emissions from its total operations. Um, it has standby power, um, and as a result, it, it kind of wants to leverage that and and offer that as a, a product to its customers. Um, he said that we're exploring bringing all this experience to the table with a consumer offer, leveraging our strong in-home position with our customers, the investments that we've made in the digitization of our customer systems, and our Telstra Loyalty Plus program. So they, they've obviously thought it through quite a bit. 
Um, T- Tilstra, of course, is quite proud of the fact that it, it's deemed itself carbon neutral, um, and that's a very big part of its positioning in the market now. So I, I, I guess getting into the provision of electricity is is all part of the pitch. Now, Rowan, uh, uh, it wasn't just about restructuring and entering into new markets. Um, there was also some discussion that invested uh, a unit in Telstra that's had a bit of a buffeting the last couple of years, and that's the Enterprise Division. And they have a new boss, and they talked about some of their plans for the future. Yeah, actually, just, just on the energy thing, um, I, I think it's interesting as well in the context of Servco because you have... Like you have obviously Telstra vertical plays in kind of like mining and health and energy, so it's kind of like it's going to be an interesting, like whatever Servco is called, it's going to be an interesting business when it kind of stands on its own. Um, so yeah, so the the enterprise stuff um, it was actually David Burns's first uh, public outing since taking over from Michael Abid, um, and he basically said that they they expect enterprise business to return to revenue and EBITDA growth in. Um, FY22, although David did note that um, some some areas within the portfolio will remain challenged, as he said, such as um, data and IP, um, so the kind of network side of things. So he, he said they were looking at kind of some key enablers to drive growth. Like one is um, on the mobile front, uh, stabilizing ARPU um, in the enterprise market, including through the kind of um, use of uh, 5G, I guess, which can offer a bit of an ARPU uplift in some areas. Also growth in IoT. Um, on, on the services front, looking for growth in key markets like cloud and security. And then on the data and IP kind of side of things, migrating, um, migrating customers to some of the newer products like its adaptive network um, suite and also then looking at like um, obviously migrating with the impending end of ISD and migrating people into kind of new offerings. And then as well, he, he said, looking for some growth in terms of um, on the international market with OTTs and enterprises. Okay, well, Telstra also provided um, a quite in-depth update on what it's doing in 5G. It says that it's now deployed 5G at more than 2,250 sites and is on track to reach 75% population coverage by the end of June next year. Um, A couple of points were made um, about why Telstra is focusing so much on 5G. One is that it's much more data efficient. Data consumption from customers is growing at 30 to 40% a year. So it just makes sense for them to upgrade to, to a more powerful platform. But the other observation that was made was that the device ecosystem for 5G is materializing a lot faster than previous generations of mobile technology. And, and as a proof point, uh, a $499 Motorola 5G handset was released just this week. Um, and of course, the, the, the Apple iPhones, the new Apple iPhones are all out now as well which adds to that momentum. In fact, Telstra reckons it's now adding 40,000 new 5G devices a week to its network. And it reckons that it, it might well get up to um, around 750,000 users by the end of the year, which is pre- pretty big numbers of, of, a, of obviously what was a pretty small standing start at the beginning of the year. They're finding that um, 5G customers are using about twice the data of 4G customers, um, and that that's, um, they're finding that 72% of iPhone 12 devices in pre-orders are on their top three plans. So that, that gives you an idea of who are the types of people who are migrating to 5G. All, all very interesting stuff, and, and um, as uh, Communications Minister Paul Fletcher keeps on telling us, 2021 looks like it will be the year of 5G. 
<laughs> need a little sound effect to play when you say that, I think. Okay, thanks for joining us today, Rowan. Cheers. Now, um, I had the opportunity to talk about the Investor Day announcements of CEO Andy Penn and CFO Vicky Brady on Thursday. I started off by asking Andy if the focus on new, the new Tower Co. spin-off was influenced by some of the heavy M&A and investment activity that has been taking place in that area worldwide across the last 12 months. Um, no, I, I don't think it's so much that. I mean, I think it's more just been the general sort of um, uh, increasing level of interest and, and uh, spatial appetite for infrastructure assets, particularly car assets, that have been pretty important. And I think also, as well, Brandon, we've been working through the establishment of InfraCo. I think there was a bit of a binary view historically that, um, and probably I may have been doing a bit of this myself as well, that, you know, um, you couldn't have your cake and eat it too, if you see what I mean, in the sense that, um, well, Telford's network is better than everybody else's. Ergo, the towers are really important. Ergo, to preserve strategic competitive advantage, you can't do anything with the towers, where I think we've been taking a much more sophisticated approach and saying, no, actually, we can identify the towers which are strategic and those that are less strategic. We can also separate the passive assets from the radio access from the spectrum, and we can preserve our strategic competitive advantage, but at the same time, actually, we can um, take advantage of the, of the valuation. So that's really what we're doing. So less, less about what's actually happening in the market with NDNOs and plenty of friends and all of that. Um, now, at the start of your presentation, Andy, you mentioned energy and getting into the energy market. You, you didn't dwell on the topic very long, but I actually found that to be quite an interesting new opportunity for Telstra and, and potentially even with a limited take-up, you know, it could potentially add hundreds of millions or billions to the bottom line over, over, over time. So can you tell me a bit more about your thinking on energy and what your expectations might be for it in the future? Yeah, no, look, happy to. I mean, I think to your point, I, I think it's, it is an exciting opportunity and, you know, I think given where we are in our whole, we call it T22, I guess, I sometimes feel sort of guilty about using the internal jargon externally, but I think you're, you're close enough to us to understand what we're talking about. But my point is, is that at the early stage of our T22 journey, we had so much work to do to digitise the business, to really transform some of the products and services on the core telco side but it would have just been um, it would have been a good idea to, to, to add energy to our overall portfolio but because we've made so much progress because of the success of things like the digitisation of our customer systems um, you know where we're positioned in the home with customers uh, there's some you know, synergies with some of the stuff that we're doing in uh, in the home, technologically, we've got text, field text, um, because also our loyalty program now is more than 2.5 million customers going astonishingly well. Um, and also because we have a lot of very strong in-house energy experience, because we have to, because we're a major user. Uh, we've got a strong energy team. Um, ben Bergey runs our energy business. He used to be the CEO of PowerShop. We've got people Origin. Um, you know, we're doing a lot in renewables. And so we just feel as if, and of course the other thing is, um, you know, customers trust Telstra's brand in the home and when they're moving in, and even now customers ask us whether we should help them with their energy when they actually move home, which we can't. So, so we're just going to be 
considered and measured and conservative in terms of how we roll this out, but I, I do think it could be a good opportunity for us. And in a market where we're clearly already a very, very big player, you know, your, your growth opportunities tend to get a little bit limited by your sort of your incumbent market share. I mean, it's, a, it's a new adjacency where we don't have any constraints, so therefore I think um, we're pretty excited about it, but we don't want to get sort of carried away because we know we've got a lot of work to do. Okay. Okay. Um, I wanted to move to the um, forecasts regarding fixed um, fixed broadband margins, and particularly your expectation you can improve them into the teens through largely through internal cost efficiencies. But I did I did want to um, get an understanding of how that interplays with Telstra's fixed wireless plans, and if adoption of fixed wireless, presumably targeting maybe some of the lower margin, lower value customers might help with that process of improving margins on MBN resale. Yeah, I actually, that's a, it's an interesting call. We've got a question this morning about, you know, does fixed wireless contribute to that? And, and our answer is no by virtue of the fact that um, it's not included in that output, but your point is, is actually if you could service less profitable customers with a fixed wireless solution could contribute that way. I don't think we've factored it's a good decision before that, you know, I haven't thought about that clearly, but um, it's not, that's not a big assumption in our output, but um, do you want to maybe talk Vicky about what our outlook, um, you know, where we see that improvement coming from? Yeah, no, and Graham, yeah, you're spot on. So we talked about initiatives to help fixed overall, and one of those was MBN resale margin ambition to get to mid-teens by 23. Absolutely big part of that is on the cost efficiency side, so things in our control where we can um, further reduce costs, and so that's been a focus for us and will continue to be to get there. There's also pieces on the revenue side, so... Um, customers moving to higher speed plans, the add-ons we can um, sell to customers where they're valuable, things like our gaming package, Wi-Fi solutions, etc., is important. Um, and inside that overall fixed picture, so with, there was the MBN resale margin mid-teens by 23. It was also containing our losses on our legacy fixed business to 100 million per annum, and yes, the acceleration of on-net solutions. So really all three of those contributing to fixed overall, but obviously a lot of focus on the MBN retail point. Okay. Um, as a follow-up on, on the spin-out um, announcements today of the, of the, of the various uh, Infraco um, spin-outs, you indicated there'll be a consultation phase of unions and regulators and staff. Do you, do you expect that the um, product of those consultations m- might be some changes to the plans? Yeah, no, look, I think the, the point is, is that it is a very complex process and a lot of considerations, and there are a lot of stakeholders, and by that I mean, you know, there's customers, there's wholesale customers, there's retail customers, enterprise customers, there's the MDN, there's consumer groups, there's the government, um, and regulators, etc. And um, we didn't want to be overly presumptuous about saying, like, this is what we're doing, this is how we're doing it, this is precisely what it looks like and this is when it's going to get done because I think it's important that the process is informed by any concerns that our stakeholders may have and, and it would also instruct what approvals we may or may not need along the way as well. So 
what we've announced is our intention of what the outcome should look like. You, you can imagine we've obviously done a lot of work to make sure that we have a degree of confidence that we get to an outcome which looks like that. But now what we want to do is work with the detail of you know, precisely how we get there. We've got a hypothesis, it's a very clear plan, but we just need to take key stakeholders along on the journey. Um, and, and it may be that out of that consultation we do things a little bit differently than we thought, but I don't think that's going to fundamentally change where we tend to get to. But Becky, any comments for you? No, spot on. It was a simplified sort of proposed structure that we put in market today. Um, and as Andy said, we've done lots of work and we can see multiple paths to get to that. Okay. Um, I have a final question um, and uh, I'll, I'll get to it very quickly. Um, data centres are not a big part of Telstra's plans going forward, um, but they've been a big value creator for other companies like NextDC, which is worth $6 billion, Airtrunk's worth $3 billion. What, what, what is it about data centres that aren't so attractive to Telstra as a sort of potential future creator of value? Well, I think that, um, you know, that running a data center business um, is obviously a very significant scale game. Um, and when you're just doing co-location, um, there's no real value added to the software add. So where, where I think it's going to become more interesting in the future is that sort of fusion between data center and and edge compute services. Um, but data centers, we do run data centers um, and we do provide that for our customers. But we only really do it where we're actually providing a value added service to them at the same time. Um, you know, and in cloud, we're never really going to be able to compete on a scale basis with the big hyperscalers. You know, but there's certain you know, customers such as specialised customers who've got specialised needs where we can not only provide data center functionality and capability, but in a particular way or alongside services and applications. And the other thing we talked about today was you know, we announced a partnership recently with you know, Microsoft on Edge Compute. We're doing, we're one of the founders of the uh, Future Forum on 5G, where we're working with Verizon and a couple of big operators at Amazon, uh, sorry, at, uh, Amazon Web Services on uh, edge computer as well. I think there'll be some interesting areas there. Thank you very much for joining us. Well, we're going to turn our attention to technology now and specifically the topic of software-defined converged transport networks. This is an important topic because we're at a bit of an inflection point in the network investment cycle with the beginning of mass deployment of 5G and of course in Australia, the expansion of the NBN with the new fibre overlays and fibre to the node areas. Joining me is Cisco's principal architect, ANZ service provider, Daniel Hutchins, to talk all about it. Welcome, Daniel. Uh, morning, Graham. How are you going? I'm pretty good. I'm pretty good. Um, so what's the problem with how operators build networks today? Uh, yes, Graham. Um, really what we've seen is operators have been building the underlying transport network, which will support 5G and the you know, capacity it needs, but they've been building it the same way for many years, right? So they build an optical network, they build an IP network, and then they largely 
engineer and operate those independently. Uh, and the problem with this is essentially is that you're, uh, it's not cost optimized. So we think there's a better way to do this, which is to, I guess, converge the IP and optical networks more tightly and integrate those more tightly, but then also layer in automation from the beginning rather than um, later, uh, basically to bring all of this together. So we're talking about you know, three technology elements here, the, the IP network, the optical network, and automation all, all tightly integrated uh, for the next wave of uh, yeah, transport network builds. So what's the actual benefit to a service provider from this? Um, yeah, I think there's, there's, you know, the two major things are uh, reduced CapEx and reduced OpEx, but, um, you know, reducing CapEx, we've done a lot of modeling with operators around the world of this new architecture that we're proposing. And we are seeing something like up to a you know, 60% reduction in CapEx for some operators in terms of the spend profile to deliver equivalent capacity across their networks. Um, and this would take um, maybe the efficiency of their links and network from something like 36% to 53% utilization if I look at uh, one large US operator we just completed this with. So essentially what we're doing there is removing uh, duplicate spend across elements of the network, uh, removing redundancy from the IP network and the optical network, uh, and leveraging, I guess, newer technology ways of, bu- uh, technology ways of building the network uh, to, uh, yeah, to produce this reduced capex. Now, the other piece here is the reduced opex. Really, what we're talking about here is having uh, el- networks with fewer elements and simpler services. Therefore, I need less tools. I need less operators uh, to get uh, involved. And through automation, many of the things traditionally did manually would be automated. Again, reducing the amount of engineering time it takes to lifecycle the network. So, on the supply side, what industry trends are enabling this? Uh, yeah, Graham. So really what we've seen is, you know, most of the traffic across the world and the growth of traffic is in IP. Uh, and due to the growth of IP and also the advent of the, uh, the web scalers uh, using IP-based platforms, we've seen really the cost of silicon that we're using the routers come down and down and down. Uh, so what we want to do here is leverage that cost curve as much as possible to build networks from the commodity parts. And this is uh, IP-based uh, silicon switching. So we want to use this as much as possible uh, against uh, using very specialized uh, optical uh, components, which are specialized and have much longer lead times uh, and are not as cheap uh, in the cost per bit to uh, send traffic. The other piece is uh, we have the advent now of uh, 400 gigabit Ethernet and particularly the 400 gig ZR and ZR Plus standards. This is the first multi-vendor specification uh, in the industry where we'll be able to leverage that to essentially uh, have better competition between vendors, helping operators drive down the cost of, you know, 400 gig and 400 gig uh, futures, like 800 gig uh, as we go forward. So basically reducing the overall cost of those components as well. Okay, so what is inherent to Cisco that qualifies it to lead this transition? Um, yeah, Graham, to um, about to pull off this transition, you really need three things I think I talked about before. So you need a strong uh, heritage in service provider routing, you need a strong uh, optical technology portfolio, and you also need to have leading automation tools to make it happen. Um, so we have all three of those, and um, in the last couple of years, we've also made some um, investments in silicon photonics um, so that we can actually just build out and compete uh, with, you know, with, other, with other vendors uh, in this space. Okay, so in, in this convergence what are the issues to be solved in making yeah, this happen? Yeah, so we, uh, there are still a quite a large number of issues, and we won't have time to cover them all today. Um, 
But we do still have on our side some issues to solve. Like we've got the first uh, generation of this technology available, but for some operators, we will need to be able to send their existing wavelength services uh, over this new network architecture. So we need something called private line emulation, and that's something we're working on. Uh, we will need uh, engineers available who have a strong understanding in both the optical and IP domains because if this is converged you need to understand both but we think automation can really help close the gap here in terms of helping people build and operate these networks uh, and lastly there's actually a bit of an issue here that uh, we will need to be able to send uh, 400 gig uh, ZR wavelengths over existing optical networks where operators already have investment um, this is something that many optical vendors will try to charge a hefty license fees to the operators for to, to handle something they call um, alien wavelength management uh, we will need, I guess, as a community to, um, you know, look at this new architecture, how we help our operators and not charge license fees for where there's not much value. Okay. Now, you've been talking to your customers over the past year on this. What have they been telling you? Yeah, so we started off with, a, I guess, a, a view of this architecture that we could just use um, 400 gig ZR optics in a hop-by-hop network architecture, but really the operators have told us that in some use cases or even many use cases, depending on the operator, they will still need to have optical switching in the network using a piece of technology called a Rodem. So we've kind of taken our p- proposed architecture and brought in a bit more a bit more Rodem capability. Um, we will also need to beef up the way that we deliver timing uh, in the network to support 5G synchronization. Um, and the last thing we've really learned is about how operators build capacity into their networks. If we took a typical operator, and this is a case study we've done, if they need to give 10 gig capacity at the edge of the network for a customer, they may put that on a router, but then they will put a 100 gig port on the uplink of that router to service that 10 gig at the edge. And then the optical team then put in 200 gig of capacity into the network. So essentially to support 10 gig, they deploy 200 gig. So we need to find a better way of building these networks to stop. You know, you can see what's basically an overspend there. Okay, so what types of service providers are deploying this architecture? Yeah, so as I've said, this is you know, a new architecture. We've been doing case studies across the last uh, year or so with operators around the world, but we have got some tier ones in the US and across Asia who are now going to be uh, adopting this architecture, and they've seen a benefit of doing this, and they plan to build out and deploy this, I guess, over the next 12 to 18 months with us. Okay, and what is Cisco specifically doing to drive this over the next year? Um, yeah, so we have completed, I guess, the first wave of technology development to support this architecture. Uh, we have a second wave, I guess, underway to uh, create uh, new optical line systems to support the architecture. Uh, and we also need to ship 400 gig ZR optics, and you know, as will other other vendors. Um, I think the other part about what's what needs to happen here is really what we're looking for is some engagement out of uh, ANZ operators to prove out this model with them, like it's working globally and we think it should work in the local market. But really, the, I guess our call to action here is to uh, you know, talk to us and we're happy to engage and help prove out this model. Um, we've developed quite a few tools to help us prove the model and really what we need uh, is some more engagement with our customers. Okay, well, that's the lowdown on converged SDN transport. Thank you very much for joining us today, Daniel. Uh, thanks so much, Graham. Have a good day. Now, this week, I had a chance to chat with Chua Sokong, the CEO of Singtel. Now, Singtel is a pretty big company. Not only is it the dominant operator in Singapore, but it owns Optus here in Australia. It also has operations in countries such as the Philippines, 
Indonesia, Thailand, India, and even some countries in Africa. Uh, Ms. Chua has had an amazing career. She joined the telco in 1989, and she became the CEO 18 years later in 2007. Now, she retires at the end of this year, and I had a chance to talk with her this week, where first up, I asked her if in her 30 years in telecom, she had ever seen anything like COVID in terms of an external event impacting the business. I also asked her, when did she think the effects of COVID might pass? Okay, well, you've asked a very, very difficult question. <laughs> I wish I had the answer. I, I mean, clearly, you know, um, we are encouraged by, you know, developments in the development of various vaccines, uh, etc. But frankly, you know, it will be a long while before things will move back to as per normal. And, you know, in Singapore, they've been, they've been set up on a lot of testing, and we are trying to gradually open up. But clearly, you know, when you have a massive lockdown of this nature globally, and where you have all kinds of travel restrictions, it, it, it would impact, you know, our, our business. Um, I think, firstly, I have, to, I have to say that I'm very proud that we have demonstrated that the network that we have built are very resilient. We have actually set up on our network investments to make sure that we have the necessary network capacity to meet the increased data demand that we saw across the network, particularly in the early days. We saw, we, you know, so investments that we have made both in Singapore and Australia demonstrated that the, the infrastructure that we owned, that's the critical infrastructure that has stood up to the test, and we are proud that you know, um, we did not let our customers down in making sure that we, we deliver a platform that allow a lot of the digital transactions to happen. What we have seen with COVID is the increased pace of digitalization, and that does open up new business opportunities for us. You've seen our ICT business delivered very strongly, uh, you know, as we helped businesses, as we helped governments uh, digitalize. That, that is encouraging, and we continue to see new growth opportunities there. And with 5G that gradually being rolled out, that will, be a, that will add further impetus to the whole digitalization initiatives that we've seen gather a whole lot of impetus and momentum during the, during the pandemic period and during the lockdown. Um, the negative that we saw, obviously, you know, we reduced uh, travel with all, the, with all the border closures. Roaming is a, has been badly impacted, particularly in Singapore. Roaming is a big part of our business. You know, Singapore is a big business centre. So, you know, and that has impacted our consumer business, that has impacted our enterprise business. And, you know, we all know roaming is a relatively high-margin business. We also have roaming impact in Australia as well. And, of course, you know, with general business sentiments being impacted by, you know, by the pandemic, uh, we've seen discretionary spending impacted as well. Um, we hope that as things return to normal, uh, how long that would take is a big question mark. We hope to see, you know, uh, spending gradually recover, and we've, we've shown to you our revenue trends for second quarter, that has shown some encouraging signs of recovery. Now, I also asked Sokhon to reflect on some of the changes and trends that she's seen over her career at Singtel, 
And also, I guess, to uh, get the crystal ball going and give us some insights into, think, into where she thinks Intel was headed in its future. So during this time, we have seen significant transformation in the industry and in the company. So, uh, you know, I think it was not so long ago when mobile communication was seen as a service only for the rich. But during this period of time, we've seen mobile communication networks become the basic communication infrastructure, particularly in the emerging economies. And, you know, we, uh, you know, we were able to ride the wave of the growth of mobile communications, particularly in the emerging markets. So we saw significant growth in the group's business from, you know, building mobile networks in the Philippines, in Indonesia, in Thailand, in India, for example. Uh, so that, that was a large part of, you know, the growth journey for the group as we saw mobile communication become the basic communication infrastructure, particularly for emerging economies. Um, we, we, I think the other big trust, of course, is the whole move uh, towards, you know, uh, uh, mobile data. You know, mobile internet became, you know, became such a big thing. And, you know, and of course, the positioning of the telco has also undergone quite a fair bit of change. And while we, we are a provider of a key infrastructure uh, and we provide significant connectivity, I think the big challenge, of course, for the industry is to be able to continue to benefit from the significant uh, explosive growth that we saw in mobile data. And we saw the, you know, and I think that's something that the industry will have to continue to work on. As we built up 5G networks, we think that 5G offers a lot of very exciting opportunities, particularly in the enterprise space. But, you know, if we are not careful and we allow 5G network to be just another, you know, just building a platform for connectivity and other people, you know, benefit or you know from 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 you know all the services riding on the network and the value doesn't accrue to to the telcos then you would have a problem because you would have invested significantly and not get an appropriate rate of return so i i do see 5g as uh, you know as an exciting opportunity but also you know a significant challenge if going forward telcos cannot you know, uh, build platforms and services that would allow us to properly monetize uh, 5G. So lots of exciting things. I think digital was, you know, as, as businesses digitalize because of availability of technology, because of customers' readiness, I think that, uh, you know, um, that, is a, that is not something that telcos can adjust to easily, but we have made some, you know, we've been one of the pioneers in that space, uh, you know, we have been in cybersecurity, we've been digital marketing, uh, you know, so those are some of the exciting new, those are the exciting digital areas that I think are probably sensible, you know, and a logical move for telcos to get into digital finance, mobile finance, and, you know, I, I think those would be areas that we'll continue to focus on. Yeah. Well, salient warning there from Chua Sok Korn about where telcos need to extract value from in the future. So- and that's it for Comms Day Live this week. Hope you enjoyed the show. Don't forget to follow us on your preferred podcast app or on all the ones that you've heard of. See you next time. Right, left.